word apostasy. This is not a word we use very often, but I'm going to use it in this sermon because it's an important word. Apostasy means to fall away. And that is what these verses in large part are about. We have before us this morning, my friends, a a pretty sobering text, probably the most sobering text in all of Hebrews. Uh, It's one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament, and it's a difficult passage for many reasons. I, I doubt I'll answer all the questions that surround this text this morning. If you have questions about the passage afterward, Tim Roundtree and Alan Teisinger will be available for you to answer for them to answer all the questions you might have. Uh, It is my job to preach the whole counsel of God, and this is where we find ourselves today. So let's remember the context of Hebrews as we're working our way through this book. The Jewish Christians that are are being addressed, they're being tempted, as many of us at times in our lives are tempted, to, to give up, right? They're being tempted to believe that Jesus and his gospel are not, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. And so the author has written just this beautiful, immaculate letter to to pastor them through it. And as Will told us last week, the big theme of Hebrews we see every week is that Jesus is, in fact, worth it. Jesus is better. And the big overarching piece of application, Will said, is faithfulness. Jesus beckons you and beckons me, if we've trusted in Christ, to continue in faithfulness. And in the author's writing this letter. We've seen again and again, he is just so pastoral. He loves these people. And he's able in the same breath to encourage and to comfort the Hebrew Christians as well as to warn and rebuke the Hebrew Christians. That's one mark of a great pastor, I think. And one way we've seen this is in all of the the first person plural exhortations he uses. Very rarely do you see the Hebrews, the author of the Hebrews say, you should or you must do such and such. Rather, he says, let us. He includes himself in the admonitions he gives. We see another example of that in verse 1 of chapter 6. Jonathan just read it. Look there. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, and go on to maturity. So at the end of last week's text, the very end of chapter 5, and the beginning of this week's text, the very beginning of chapter 6, the author speaks about the Hebrews as if they're, well, as if they're like spiritually stagnated. They're spiritually stagnated. Almost a year ago now, my family moved into a new home, and we've been blessed to have a swimming pool in the back of this house. And yet when we moved in, Uh, For about two months, the swimming pool had not had the pump on. It had not received any care. And and we got into the home and we went into the backyard expecting, you know, a beautiful, clear, pristine pool that I could immediately lay next to. But instead, what we found was a a rank, nasty, frog-filled, yeah, stagnant swimming pool. And we realized very quickly, this pool has only one option. No chemical is going to heal this thing. This thing. We, we've got to drain it. That, that's the picture I get in my mind when I think about stagnation. And so the author says you can't be stagnant at the end of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6. The author says you Hebrews are at a crossroads in your journey with Jesus. You can't stay stagnant. You're either going to fall away or you're going to grow up. You you can't 
remain in this place, just like the pool had to be drained. So it is with Christians who are entering into stagnation. There's only two options. The option is to either develop and mature or to leave, frankly, the faith altogether. So the author here warns the readers, and listen, he's warning you and me this morning against falling away against the dangers of apostasy, against spiritual stagnation. And so let me just real quick address us personally. Let's, let's remember, friends, let's remember, God is speaking to us here this morning. Um, it is God who is warning us today. It's God who is summoning us to repentance and to faith. It's God who promises better things for us as well. It's God who offers us hope as we persevere. So listen, let God speak to you. Listen to his voice, especially if you feel, as verse 12 says, sluggish. Hebrews 6 exists to sober you up. You remember the princess bride? Our friend Amigo Montoya, at one point in the story, moves into hopelessness and as hopeless people sometimes do, gets roaring and furiously drunk. And he's so drunk that he can't even feed himself when Fezzik, played by our friend Andre the Giant, finds Inigo Montoya. He loves him back into, into sobriety. You remember the scene, it's hilarious. He, he feeds him soup and, and most poignantly dunks his head as lovingly as Andre the Giant can dunk someone's head, right? Into warm water and into cold water. Into warm water and into cold water. Until finally Inigo Montoya comes out of the water and says, enough! Hebrews 6 is dunking your heads in the water. (laughs) Hebrews 6 is asking you, are you sluggish? If so, listen to the voice of the Lord. Two things as we move through this text. Two realities. First, the reality of falling away. And second, the reality of better things. Okay, the reality of falling away, the reality of better things. Let's look first at the reality of falling away. That's what verses 4 through 8 are about. So these Christians are stagnant. They're at a crossroads. And the author says, you have to continue to believe that Jesus hangs on to you. Continue to persevere in faith. And, And if not, he says here, there's a deep danger. There's the danger of apostasy, the reality of apostasy, of of falling away is what's being described there in verses 4 through 8. And listen, this is not a hypothetical scenario. The author is speaking about real events and the real experiences of real people then and now. And if you look at the text, he gives us five descriptors of the prior experience in verses 4 and 5, of those who fall away. Look at what he writes. They have once been enlightened, he says. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared or been companions of, that's the literal reading, the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God, and they've tasted the powers of the age to come. What these verses teach is that it is possible to go deep into the community of faith. It's possible to be super into Jesus and not to persevere, but to fade. And even more striking is 
that the author says that, that once this happens, verse 4, it is impossible to restore these people again to repentance. In fact, in the original language, the word impossible is the first word of verse 4, which in the Greek language is a way of emphasizing something. They didn't have italics or exclamation points. And so if they wanted to make a point, they would put the key word at the beginning of a sentence. And that's what we see here with the word impossible. I've probably read the Chronicles of Narnia five or six times in my life, some books more than others. And uh, I've been trying not to use as many C.S. Lewis illustrations. It's hard, okay, it's hard. So forgive me, but this is a good one, I think. Um, The Chronicles of Narnia, of course, begin with the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it it, it tells the story of the four Pevensey children. There's, There's Peter, and there's Susan, and there's Edmund and Lucy. And they find during World War II in this huge mansion, a magical wardrobe. And they enter through the wardrobe into the land of Narnia. And in Narnia, they meet the White Witch, where it's under her reign, always winter, but never Christmas, right? And, and through the help of their friend Aslan and other friends, they are able to defeat the White Witch. And, and they live in Narnia, really, for ages and ages. And they serve as kings and queens of the realm. And then at the end of the first book, they come out. Each book, of course, is a different tale of the children and other characters in the land of Narnia. The final book is The Last Battle. And at the very end of the last battle, Aslan has finally defeated all of the powers of evil and created a new Narnia. And at the end of the last battle, you see a curtain call so to speak, of all the characters that have appeared throughout all of the stories. But there's only three Pevensey children. There's Peter, and there's Edmund, poor, sad, pathetic, but repentant Edmund. And there's Lucy. Susan, the second one in the family, the pretty girl, the dark-haired, tender-hearted, occasionally cautious to the point of being a bit of a wet blanket character is conspicuously absent. Susan, who had received the gift of the bow and the arrows and a magic horn that summons help whenever she might need it. These gifts signified her strength and the beauty of her femininity and and her prudence. But in the last battle, she's not there. Someone notices, weren't there four children? And Aslan responds by saying this, Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. She's no longer a friend of Narnia. And if you've read the book, you might remember that Susan has been excluded from heaven for for growing up, for liking lipstick and nylons and parties more than Narnia. I think Lewis is drawing on his reading of Scripture in telling that tale. There are many throughout the Bible. Judas, Saul, Demas, and many more who are a part of the church and the Christian family and seem to have faith in Jesus for a time, but then move on to what they consider to be more important things. That's apostasy. Let's just call a spade a spade here, okay? It sure sounds like the author is saying that people can become Christians and then not be Christians anymore. That people can lose their salvation. Is that what he's saying? Is that what this text teaches? That you can be born again? That you can have all your sins forgiven? And then you can lose that? 
You know, this is a great opportunity for us to practice one of the most important principles of biblical interpretation. And that interpretive principle is this. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. In other words, what we do is we use clear texts to help us understand vague texts. And there are many, many clear texts in the Bible that once saved, always saved is a biblical idea. Just one example, Jesus in John chapter 10 says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And here's the key, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And in fact, there's similar language in our own letter in the very next chapter of Hebrews. Chapter 7, verse 25, the author writes that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Saving to the uttermost means that Jesus is able to keep you saved. (laughs) It means that Jesus' grace is more powerful than any efforts you might make to sabotage your own salvation. Jesus' grace is more powerful than any efforts you might make at self-sabotage. So what is then the meaning of these verses? You know, the phrase we sometimes use, if you've been around the church for a while, as I mentioned a second ago, is once saved, always saved. And that makes the point. Listen, it's once saved, always saved. It's not once public profession made, always saved. It's not as important as baptism is, once you've been baptized, always saved. It's not once exposed to information, always saved. It's not even once powerful experience had, always saved. The text is not saying that these people who fall away were once true Christians, but he is saying that they sure seemed like it. They sure seemed like it. Look carefully again at the verses. For one, the author never says in those verses, in those five descriptors, that these people actually believed. And then more importantly, I think, a key word is used three times. It's used two times explicitly and once implicitly. The word is tasted. Did you catch that? Look again. They tasted the heavenly gift. They tasted the good word of God. And then implicitly, they tasted the powers of the age to come. There's a a recent documentary that's been made that I haven't seen yet, but I've heard about a couple of times. And I read a little bit about this week. It's called SOM, S-O-M-M. And it is about wine sommeliers who are experts at what they do. Their job, of course, is to taste wine and decide which wines are the best and to place the right wine with the right food as they work in fabulous restaurants all over the world. And, And And the documentary, the section that I watched, uh, depicts uh, these sommeliers. And they will line up like a flight of wine glasses. Eight or ten glasses of wine in a row. And they'll go through and they'll taste each glass. And and the things they can say about a wine after one sip are remarkable. They'll tell you just what the tint is and, and what fruits are used and the, and the aftertaste, the, the oak in the aftertaste. And often they're even able to guess what vineyard the wine comes from. But, but you know what they do after they taste maybe even two or three sips of wine? 
they spit the wine out into a bucket. Why? Well, you can't do that job well. You can't do any job well. (laughs) When you've had eight to ten glasses of wine. And so they get the experience of the wine. They're able to learn a lot about the wine. They taste the wine. But they don't drink it. It doesn't become part of them, so to speak. It's possible to be in super close proximity to the gospel and never really be in Christ. It's possible to be so close that you feel the intellectual strength of Christianity. That that you feel how compelling Jesus is. It's possible to be so close that you even experience signs and wonders and works of the kingdom. Jesus himself at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in another scary text says, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. It's possible to have those experiences and to step away from it all. To say, like Susan, that was an interesting time in my life, but I need to move on. And the author says, once you go that way, you're not going to come back. Verse 7, it's like a field that's getting rain, but all that the field is producing is thorns and thistles, not what it was intended to produce. The end for that field is to be burned, to be cursed. Once you fall away, it's not possible to be restored again, the author says. That's hard. He's not saying it's impossible because Jesus isn't willing or able to do it. He's saying it's impossible because these people have consciously thought and said, I used to believe that Jesus' death was sufficient for me, but not anymore. I reject his death for me now. They won't go back. Two pieces of application here for us, okay? Some of us are very sensitive in our consciences, I think, to, to verses like this. Probably 98 out of 100 of you will go have lunch today and take a nap, do whatever you do, and not really worry much. But two of you are going to be haunted by these verses. So let me pastor you through this, okay? This text is a warning for sure. It is for sure a warning. But listen, listen to me. It is not a warning for those who are struggling with sin and who are following Jesus in the frailty and weakness of the human experience. It is not a warning for those who are consciously aware of how much they still need Jesus because of how much they still struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's not a warning for those who have a hard time getting past particular issues. Jesus, to you, says what Will taught us last week. He says, keep going. I'm with you. I understand you. Draw near to me with confidence for ongoing mercy. That's not what the warning is to. Who the warning is to. Falling away is different. Falling away is deliberate. Falling away is self-conscious. Apostasy is a clear and undeniable rejection and derision of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what verse 6 is getting at. 
when it says you're in a way re-crucifying Jesus. Listen to how John Calvin put it. Always safe to quote Calvin, I think. Here's what he says. The apostle is not talking here about theft or perjury or murder or drunkenness or adultery. In other words, if those are things you're guilty of, you're not necessarily an apostate. He says, Calvin, he is referring rather to a complete falling away from the gospel in which the sinner has offended God, not in some one respect only, but has utterly renounced his grace. So if you struggle with sin, don't fear that you're going to fall away. Struggle with sin does not equal apostasy. If struggle with sin leads to asking Jesus for mercy. That's the first piece of application. The second one, though, needs to be added. That qualification made, we should feel the warning here. We should feel the warning. This is a warning for people who live in close proximity to the gospel. It just is. This is a warning for people who can be in and around Christians, in and around the Bible, in and around Jesus, but never really know him. It's a warning for people who, who you know, by analogy, might go to the swimming pool and sit by the edge of the pool and get splashed on and have water on them so that when they leave, they're completely soaked and people think, how was your swim? And they never actually got in the water. That's who the warning is for. And, and it's a super personal warning, frankly. Because I've known a, a good number of people who have fallen away. My, my high school uh, youth group and the church I was raised in was very close. There were a lot of kids that grew up together and, and loved one another. And, and, and now as a 42-year-old, a, a lot of those people are now no longer following Jesus Christ. And, and more than that, they have very clearly and consciously, some of them, said to me at one point or another, you know, um, that experience in high school, in the youth group, that was, that was a good thing for me. But, you know, you can't really seriously expect me to still believe those things now that, that I'm an adult and I have more sophisticated problems and more sophisticated needs. I need more sophisticated answers. This happens. So, so listen, I have to say to you, my dear friends, be warned. Be warned. If you've seen and experienced the power and the life of the gospel, but if you have not entrusted everything to Jesus, you cannot remain stagnant. Be warned. Second, the reality of better things. How about some good news? You know, look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. That verse is like, uh, it's like when you've been holding your breath <laughs> underwater. Maybe you're having a contest with your kids. And you're, you're seeing who can hold their breath the longest. And you're holding your breath until the last possible moment. And then you finally come up out of water. And, and verse 9 is like that first inhalation of fresh air. What's verse 9 saying? The author's saying, I feel confident for you Hebrew Christians that this falling away that I've just described is not going to happen to you. He's confident, he says, of better things. He's confident they're, that they're truly saved, that they're in Christ, that they've been born again. And then in verses 10 through 12, uh, in a way, he's articulating why 
he has that kind of confidence. He's saying, listen, apostasy, it's real, but so are the better things of the gospel. So keep going forward. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't stop. Don't be stagnant. Don't quit. What then are are the better things that he's confident of? Let me close this out, okay, by giving us three better things that accompany salvation. Three things we can live in and experience as we journey with Jesus together that protect us against stagnation and that protect us against apostasy. First, love. Verse 9. It's interesting here that the author calls the recipients of the letter beloved. Only time in all of Hebrews that that word is used. It's as if the author, again, being a great pastor, knows that he's just written the most difficult thing he's going to say in the entire letter. And so he needs to reassure them immediately afterwards. He says, you're beloved. Now, of course, that means he loves the Hebrews. But, but more significantly, any time in the Bible you see that word beloved, the first thing you should think is you are God's. You are God's beloved. The way to press forward out of stagnation and into perseverance is to delight and rest in your own belovedness by God. Or as I like to put it from time to time, the gospel really is true. The gospel really is true. You are far, far worse than you ever thought. Welcome to Christ Church. But you're more loved by God than you ever thought possible. That's true. God loves you more than you can imagine. If you reflect on that and rest in that, stagnation is not possible. I read this week in Hosea and was so moved by what God says towards the end of the prophecy. Hosea chapter 11. He's writing through Hosea. God is speaking to, uh, to the, these rebellious Israelites who've already been exiled, who are always rejecting God. And in Hosea 11, verse 7, God through Hosea says this, My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, I'm not going to raise them up at all. I'm done with them, God is saying. But then immediately, (laughs) how can I give you up, O Ephraim? That's the people of God. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? That is, how can I make you not my people? And then get this. God says, my heart recoils within me at the thought of giving you up. My heart is disgusted by that thought. My compassion grows warm and tender. No, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am a God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. That, that text is a peek into the very deepest part of God's heart. God loves you. God loves you. How can God give up on you? How can God turn away from you even when you are bent, bent on turning away from him? No, his heart recoils at the thought of it. Believe in that. Believe in that, and you won't be stagnant. Second, hope. Look at verse 11 again. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. 
the Christian gospel offers as one of the better things hope. And the Christian hope is not like the way we tend to think about hope, right? The Christian hope is a certainty. It's a certainty because Christ really has died and he really has been raised from the dead. He really did say it is finished and he really will come back one day. This is not a hope that's just a platitude. It's not a hope that just is a sentiment. It's a bedrock certainty. And so the author saying one of the better things that accompany salvation is for you to rest in the hope of the gospel. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Let me read what N.T. Wright, a great author, says about the Christian hope. Quote, we know not just that time will heal. That's, you know, earthly hope because it often doesn't. Not just that we'll gradually forget the pain, because quite likely we won't. Not simply that things will settle down by themselves, because often they don't. We know, rather, that one day God will make new heavens and new earth, where the valleys will be filled in and the mountains flattened so that the Lord in his glory may return to dwell with us forever. And we know that he allows us, even in the present, to anticipate that great event by moments when, in his good time, and in answer to the spoken and unspoken prayer of how long, O Lord, how long, he will bring us round the dark corner and into the light and will wipe away all tears from our eyes. So don't be stagnant, but plow ahead and grow in hope. Third, faith. Verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. You know, in a way, the author is saying here that the Christian life is playing the long game. The Christian life is playing the long game. If your stock advisor tells you, play the long game, that's what my stock advisor, if I had one, I'm sure, that's what he would tell me. Play the long game. The market's not doing well, but play the long game. Uh, that's, that's what the Christian life is. It's the long game. Don't buy the get rich quick schemes. Faith in Jesus, is, he's saying, is a, is a lifelong journey towards the promises that wait for us at, at the end of all things. So don't give up. Christ is with you. Keep the faith. Christ is for you. Rest in our hope. Christ has died and has risen. Live in his love. Christ is yours. I'm confident of better things for us because all of this is true. Just this morning, I'll close with this. I got an email from uh, a seminary classmate of mine whose name is Kirk, who's a missionary in the Ukraine. And uh, I've been getting emails from him every day. He's with a large team with our denomination there. And um, let me just read you what he said. Each of our pastors, team, and church members has their own list of people who we are working to provide safety for. Each of us are on the phone, checking in, tracking people's progress west, and receiving gracious offers from churches and families in Europe who are willing to receive refugees. The constant texts, phone calls, and updates from those on the road fleeing, a city being bombed, and the arrangements being made on the other end are hectic, stressful, and taxing. Many of us don't know how long we can keep it up. But our fatigue pales in comparison to those on the road. Aside from the fact that these people have left cities being shelled, traveled with the sound of bombers flying overhead, been on the road for four or five days, they now have no guarantee of certainty for their future 
or if they will ever return. One church member from the city of Kherson left early this week, and their family has just recently arrived to safety. The city they left is now under full Russian control. TV channels have switched from Ukrainian to Russian. Cell phones no longer work on local providers, and Russian soldiers patrol the streets. They left everything behind in their city and are unsure if they'll ever be back, either because of their persecution for being in the church or the safety of their city. They may leave everything behind, as many did in eastern Ukraine eight years ago, fleeing the persecution and danger. What should we say to these things? He writes, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong both body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil and Vladimir Putin. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is the truth. Do you believe it? If you believe it, you can't be stagnant. So rest in the fact that God loves you, that the hope is certain, and that faith will carry us to the end. Let's pray.